I want to begin this morning by asking you if you think you'd want to be a Christian if you weren't a Christian. Do you think you'd want to be a Christian if you weren't a Christian, especially if what you had to go off of was observing other Christians? If you weren't a Christian, do you think you'd want to be a Christian if what you had to go off of was the behavior of other Christians? I'll go ahead and answer and say, I don't think I would. There might be exceptions, but generally speaking, I don't think I'd want to be a Christian. And I'm certain I wouldn't want to be a Christian pastor. After all, so many people who say they're Christians talk a lot. I guess I could just stop there. (laughs) They talk a lot about God. And many people who say they're Christians also talk a lot about rules and laws and regulations and doing this and doing that and how to be a good person and showing you how to be a good person because they're good people And yet, many times, professing Christians who talk a lot about God and about rules and regulations, even things that aren't even in the Bible, are some of the bigger hypocrites we know. Not to mention professing Christian pastors. Perhaps you've seen the bumper sticker that says, God, save me from your people. I kind of like it. We'll be selling them in the bookstore after the service. No, <laughs> we won't be. But, but thinking this way isn't without reason. It's not without reason to think these bad-behaving, professing Christians with all the rules and regulations and their hypocrites really turns me off. In fact, it is an issue in Titus. Okay, so if you turn in your Bible to Titus chapter 1, we've already looked at this passage, but in, in the book of Titus, you've got Titus, a pastor, pastoring in Crete. Paul's helping him to understand what the church is supposed to be, what the church is supposed to do, what pastors are supposed to do, how Christians are supposed to act. But Crete has a population of professing Christians who behave badly and are to stand out and even help then, when we get to chapter 2, true Christians not behave like those professing Christians who behave so badly and give all of these other people, all of these unbelievers, a bad taste in their mouth. If that's what Christianity is, I don't want any part of it. I think Christianity makes people worse, not better seems to be what's going on. So let's go ahead and see. It's not without reason that we might say things like, God, save us from your people. If that's what Christianity is, I don't want any part of it. So let's go ahead and look at verses 10 to 16. I'll just make a few comments as we go. For there are many. He's not talking about atheists. He's talking about religious people. Somehow, it seems, even professing Christians. They certainly are professing Bible believers who are insubordinate empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. I wrote in my notes, read lots of rules. 
extra-biblical rules and regulations. Okay? Verse 11, they must be silenced since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain. Okay? They're, they're, they're self-promoters, money-grubbers. What they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars. They're, they're dishonest people. Evil beasts, or they're dangerous. They're, they're lazy gluttons. I think there's lots of irony there, and I don't want to re-preach the passage, but you know, when, when, when human beings start getting creative with religion, it's always rules and regulations about things, and we love our extra-biblical laws, and we love food laws. Time and time again, food laws. It's interesting he calls them gluttons. These are probably people that say you shouldn't eat all this different food, but in actuality he's saying they're gluttons. Anyway, I couldn't resist. It says in verse 13, the testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Again, lots of extra biblical rules, things we must do for God to accept us, to be extraordinary, to be godly. Verse 15, to the pure all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God. Lots of God talk, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work pretty ironic, right? If they're boasting in good works for God to accept them, he says they don't do any good works. Nothing they do is good. So it's insult to injury. I went back there just to highlight for you, there's a reason why people would say, if that's what Christianity is, I don't want any part of it. I see right through the whole thing. We're going to look at chapter 2 today. We're going to at least start chapter 2 verses 1 to 15. And it's in radical contrast. Titus the pastor is to tell Christians, genuine Christians, to motivate genuine Christians, which is what I'm going to try to do, and, and saying, hey, look, here we are in Crete. It's a, it's a tough place to do ministry, but here we are to do evangelism in Crete. Read Omaha. And, and, and we, we want to tell people about Jesus, and we want to tell them the good news, we want to tell them about Christ, we want them to become Christians. But what they're seeing as Christian is bad, and so let me motivate you to not be Christians behaving badly. Because Christians behaving badly isn't good. It doesn't complement the gospel. Paul's going to say, I love this image. He says that we're to adorn the gospel, to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior, to complement it with our behavior. So if I'm just going to borrow from that, what I'm going to try to do this morning from Titus chapter 2 is to motivate you from Scripture in light of the gospel to be a gospel adorner in your life, a gospel complementer with your life. We don't live the gospel. We know that. We could never live the gospel. Jesus is the only one who's truly good. We don't find ourselves saved or justified by our good works. No, that's what those false teachers were saying, and then they lived terribly. Salvation, and I'll do all I can to emphasize it, and I always do, is by grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of Christ alone. It's all what He does. We don't do any good works to contribute. It's His good work. Can't be emphasized enough. And I'm not going to say but... And Paul compliments that. 
with the fact that if you're united to Christ, you, 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 you've been born again. You have, you have new life. So live like you have a new life. Because you have a new life. You've been raised with Christ from Romans chapter 6. So, so let's, let's have true good works that come as a result of His good work. And to the point where the Bible is even going to say we're going to see, we should be zealous for good works. So interesting that the people who claim good works get them to heaven, Paul says they don't have any good works. Their good works aren't good. But then he's going to say, good works come from being united to the good one. And you better believe it. (laughs) They're to come as a result of. So that when people see your life, they may not see the gospel because we can't live the gospel. We proclaim the gospel. But they don't see an utter contradiction. You're complementing the gospel. There's life change. You're adorning the doctrine of God our Savior. It's fascinating. It's awesome. Remember that good works are really important in the Bible. God requires them. The best work of all would be loving God and loving your neighbor. First most important, second most important. But we don't love God and we don't love neighbor. We don't do any good works. Human religion tends to say, if you just do these things, with God's help maybe, God will accept you. The problem is, Paul's going to say that good works aren't good. Because you're not united to the good one who atones for your sin who credits you with His righteousness. So I realize I'm kind of pre-preaching the sermon, but just setting things up, Titus is fascinating. Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, coming from that, genuine Christians actually have good works. This is kind of crude. It's too... um, It's not... not Maybe it is. If if you have... Picture a wonderful dog. (laughs) you can't let the tail wag the dog but the dog has a tail eh, it's not biblical right? the good works follow but human religion and false teaching end up having the tail wag the dog it's a reverse but your dog had better have a tail or I'm going to make fun of it (laughs) point being good works do come it's a sign of life okay, enough pre-preaching the preaching okay evangelistic context, they're to reach people with the gospel, to proclaim the gospel, and their lives should complement that. So we're going to look at verses 1 to 10, how we must live. There's the how, how we must live as Christians, not for God to accept us, but because He has accepted us. And then, secondly, in verses 11 to 15, and I know we won't get done, why we must live this way. Here's how you should live. And here's why you must live this way. And I'll just give you the preview. The latter point is fascinating. Teaching us that tied to the intention of Christ's work, tied to the the purpose of Christ's work, is good works in the lives of those he dies for. It's fascinating. So we're going to get to that, but I don't know if we'll get to it much today. So just remember, I'm going to try to assault you with commands. Okay? But they don't hang on their own. 
those commands are then going to, we're going to learn the why. The reason is because Christ, by virtue of what he did, did what he did so that you would be alive and you would act like you're alive. So in the end, who gets all of the glory and all of the credit for even the good works that Christians do? The designer, the worker, the savior. It's tied to it. Fascinating. Okay, ready? All right. You ready to be assaulted with commands? No, these are, these are actually all good things. Okay, Titus chapter 2, verse 1. But as for you, not like those faux Christians who, who don't adorn the gospel, they, they, they just make it look terrible. But as for you, Pastor Titus, is who he's addressing first, teach. Here's what you must teach. It's a command. Teach what accords, what complements sound doctrine. Paul loves sound doctrine. He talks about sound doctrine all the time. It's healthy teaching, okay? Healthy doctrine. It's what people need to be saved. It's what they need to grow spiritually. It can be used synonymously with the gospel. Titus, as a pastor, what I want you to do, what you must do, is you must teach what complements gospel doctrine, gospel teaching, sound doctrine, truth about God, truth about Christ, truth about salvation. That's what you must do. That's your mandate. And as we're going to see, it has to do with Titus telling Christians, if they're truly Christians, to do the right thing. Because they can. Because they're united to Christ. So, that's what's happening here. What accords, what complements, what is befitting of sound doctrine. Titus, you don't preach extra Jewish myths or Gentile myths. You don't preach extra laws because you think that'll really help people. You don't go for the latest and greatest fad. If you really want to be spiritual, you're going to do the, the, the Daniel devotional diet or whatever else it might be. Whatever the latest fad is, Christians don't need all this stuff. What they need is to live godly lives. I'm going to explain what that looks like. That, that what they'll be commanded to do complements the perfect work of Jesus, sound doctrine. And by, that's just awesome that he's going to do this. You don't want to look like the people in chapter 1, Titus. And you don't want to call people in your church to be people like the people in chapter 1. Maybe if you just want to look ahead a little bit, uh, this is going to motivate me to raise my voice a little bit. Chapter 2, verse 15. Uh, we're not there yet, but when he summarizes what he's been saying to Titus, he does say in verse 15, declare these things. There's authority involved. Exhort and rebuke with all authority, not his own, but Christ's authority in light of the opening verses. Let no one disregard you. So I'm going to do my best to reflect that and say, these are, these are things you must do. These are not optional for you as a Christian. By the authority vested in me as a preacher of the gospel, if you're a Christian, I'll say to you, you need to not behave badly. You need to do the right thing. You need to, by God's grace, only because of Christ, I'm not a legalist. Neither was Paul, neither is Titus. Only because of Christ, you, you need to do these things. You need to act like a person who's spiritually alive. Because you are, if you're in Christ. Got that off my chest. <laughs> these aren't just ideas or suggestions. 
tied to the design of the atonement would be your good works. So he's saying, get busy. So that when the unbelieving Cretans, you know, 78th and State Street and everywhere else, when the unbelieving Cretans look at you, they go, hmm. There's something, something about, there, about that person that's, that's complimenting the gospel, adorning. Okay. Here we go. Ready? Older men are first. I'd like all the men to come forward at this time. <laughs> older men. He doesn't say who older men are. Let's not try to figure it out. Okay? Older men are to be sober-minded. In other words, older men are to be clear-thinking. Okay? Another way of saying it, clear-headed. Another way of saying it, serious-minded. They're to be mature. Older men are supposed to be mature. In part so that the people who are younger can say, that's how you're supposed to be. They're sober-minded. So, men, you should be a good, clear thinker. Sober-minded. To be able to make good decisions. First and foremost, let's say, in the realm of the church. That's not right. That is right. My convictions will lead me down that road. Doesn't mean you're mean about it. To be be a clear thinker. He's not talking about being sober as in don't be a drunk. That's addressed elsewhere. But let's pick up on the idea. He's, He's talking about something way bigger than that. He's saying, you should be so clear thinking, clear headed, not easily swayed, not just moved by some, uh, by emotion only. Emotion's good, but you've got to be sober minded. Now, let's think about people that we've, almost all of us, not all of us, but almost all of us have been around people who are drunk. And people who are drunk don't typically appreciate people who are sober. Right? You're just, you know, some sort of stick in the mud and you're not having any fun and you're far too serious and you're grumpy. And even if everybody else knows that the person is acting like a total idiot, not making any sense, not rational, the drunk person is the fool, not the sober person. Well, I want to bring that into the spiritual realm so we can understand the point. There are all these people who are spiritually drunk. They're immature. They've drank long and steadily at who knows what kind of stuff. Mature men, sound doctrine, healthy teaching. I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. I'm going to lead here. I'm not going to lead there. I have my wits about me. And you will be perceived as the person is at the party who's not drunk. But you're actually the one who has your wits about you. I promise I won't take this long on all of them. But just my point really there is just because you're criticized doesn't mean you're wrong. You've got a whole lot of spiritual drunks around who are into all kinds of laws and all kinds of isms and all kinds of spasms and schisms and who knows what else. 
And, and a lot of times, you, if you're a mature Christian man, look like you're the fuddy-duddy, grumpy guy. Just remember the party illustration. You're actually the one who's going to get everybody home safe. Remember context again. I don't want to keep doing this. But remember the context is, men, be sober-minded. Because God will accept you then and justify you. No, 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 no. It's because of what Christ has done for you. As a Christian, you should act this way. You should be the voice of reason. Why did it take me so long to say voice of reason? That was a good way to kind of summarize all this. Next time I preach it, it'll be better. Okay. Then he says, we better get things moving. He says next on the list, dignified. Respectable is maybe another one that's going to help us. One New Testament scholar said this, actions and decisions that are respectable. That, that, that person is respectable. They're dignified. They, 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 do, they do proper things. They make proper decisions. It's just maturity. I can't help but keep it in the context of there are all these spiritual loonies in Crete saying they're Christians. I think this all applies in general in our lives, but let's keep it in that context maybe to capture it better. You need to be a dignified Christian. You need to, to, to be honorable, not chasing everything. Let's keep going. Self-controlled. That's behavior that's under control. And, and Titus will use this with all of the people he addresses. Self-controlled. means you can say yes when you should say yes. You say no when you should say no, starting with yourself. We could look at Galatians and see that. See, that's the fruit of the Spirit. That isn't just something that we do. It's because of Christ. Self-control. Sound in faith could be in an objective sense in relationship to you. You really get the faith. It seems to be in the flow here, and others would see it this way. It's sound in faith, as in you, you, you trust God. Both are true, but you should be somebody who trusts the Lord, regardless of how things look. That's a mature man. And then he says, in love, love for God, love for others, like God's love for us, it may cost something, his did cost something. In love, not just for women, this is a Christian virtue. This is what all humans should do. In love, and in steadfastness or endurance or perseverance or you're not a quitter. So there's love, endurance, or steadfastness. And others have pointed out you have faith, love, and what could be termed as hope. You have faith, hope, and love. Just These are Christian virtues. I love it that, that Paul isn't saying to Titus, now, I'm going to give you all of the details and here's what men must do and I've got 487 bullet points. And so I want to capture that spirit and say, you know, this is pretty lean. This is pretty basic. It's no wonder the Bible transcends cultures. What's this look like in your life, men? I don't know exactly what it looks like in your life. But there's supposed to be trust in God even when it might not look like you should. 
because you believe God's sovereign and in control and powerful. And, and you should also be a perseverer. The hope that says, I'm going to keep going no matter what because I have confidence in God. I'm not a quitter. Mature Christian men shouldn't be quitters, especially in the spiritual realm. And love should love God. Doesn't get any more basic than that. That's the greatest commandment. Love your neighbor. Second greatest. He just keeps it so simple. Sometimes I think we mess it all up by doing the 487 ways and methods and means. And The gospel produces maturity. Things like faith, hope, love, perseverance, self-control, sober-mindedness. In some senses, men who are older men, aren't you just thinking to yourself, ah. In another sense, you might be going, mm-hmm. right? These aren't easy things. These things have to come because of the work of Christ. But they are to be our priorities. And you might be into all kinds of other things. Awesome! Go for it. But priority number one, in light of what Christ has done, would be these kinds of things. Just basics. How about this? You do these basics well by the grace of God. You're a mature Christian. And when somebody tries to guilt you with saying, well, you don't do this and you don't do this and you don't do that. Well, I'm sure excited about this list though. I love the simplicity. It's a serious thing. But it's pretty simple. Okay, let's move on. Older women likewise. Now, I'd like all the older women to... No, I'm just kidding. I don't know much, but I'm not going to tell you who older women are. (laughs) Verse 3, older women likewise, or similarly, there's going to be similarity are to be reverent in behavior. Godliness would be a good synonym. It's very big, it's very general, it's all-inclusive, it's encompassing. Reverent in behavior should act like a godly person, somebody who belongs to Christ. Not slanderers. So he's going to flesh it out a little bit. Some translations say malicious gossips. Here's a good note. I, I came across this quote this week that I thought was helpful. Concern for people can degenerate into vice, into this vice. Those usually considered most in danger of falling into it because of their positive inclination are hereby warned. Lots of older women I know are super helpful. And they want to know what's going on and they want to pray and they show concern and they're a great encouragement to me. If the commentator is right, he's saying, you know, that, that good, good thing that happens could lead to a dangerous place. So, so be careful. Or slaves to much wine. I don't know about you, but that seemed kind of out of place here in the list. 
but apparently not in Crete or Corinth. Here, it's not just the sober-minded, though that would be good for older Christian women as well. It seems to be more specific that, that you should be a sober person. Which would complement the self-control. We'll get to that. They are to teach what is good. Which is fascinating because in chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, Paul essentially says, everything is good to those who are good in Christ and those who use it goodly. I mean, nothing is inherently bad. We use good things or gifts from God for bad things sometimes. But I love this in, in making sure we see some of the theology in it. Older women, you should teach should teach what is good. Here's what I think that would look like. You're helping people to see that in Christ, all things are good, provided they're used goodly and not for sinful means. You can help other people to know that. Being in Christ changes perspective on everything. And I don't want to re-preach chapter 1, but it's fascinating. It's fascinating to keep chapter 2 in connection with chapter 1 and not just isolate it. As a little bit of an aside, I was with a friend the other day, and he said, you know, are you preaching tomorrow? And I said, I am preaching. Are you you giving the talk tomorrow? I think maybe he said, are you giving the sermon? I said, I'm giving the sermon tomorrow. I like when people say, what time is Mass? And I tell them what time service is. But whatever they, I, I I can talk to anybody about things. And so, are you giving the sermon? I'm giving the sermon. What are you giving the sermon about? I'm going to start a series in the New Testament book of Titus. Hmm. Now, I'm going to be able to explain what I, why and what it's all about. And, but he said, what's with these Titus groups? <laughs> the only thing he knew about Titus was these Titus groups. You know, he, it's from church kiosks. You know, Titus Tuesday and Titus. Anyway, and I'm like, I was able to explain to him. And why I'm telling you right now, I don't know. Um, Eventually, I got to the gospel is why I'm telling you. And there's always a way to get to the gospel, even when somebody says, what's with these Titus groups? Well, Titus isn't just about the Titus groups. As important a role as they might play. In this Titus group, the older women are teaching the younger women what is good. We're going to get to family, but no doubt in context in light of chapter 1, it has to do with everything is good in Christ. And you know, that perspective changes a lot of things. And it, it arms Christian women. Let me put it another way. It frees them to not be enslaved to the next big thing, to the next fad, to the next ism that sometimes targeted toward women in light of what Paul says elsewhere. I want you to teach what is good. I want you to teach practical things in light of the fact that all things are good. I love that. Freeing. Free free to live like a human being should. They are to teach what is good. Then in verse 4 it says, And so train the young women to love their husbands and children. That's good. 
<laughs> okay? Similar to what Paul says to the men, you're supposed to love, but he zeroes in a little bit more, and he zeroes in here with the women to, to some of their closest neighbors, because you're supposed to love your neighbor, because you love God. And some of their closest neighbors, I'm going to put it in these terms, would be their husband and children. I want you to do the, do the right thing, and, and teach other women to do the right thing. And by the way, it's, it's, it's terribly wrong what we do in our homes, and I'll include the men and the women. You know, we say, we're Christians, we love God, right? Talk, 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 God, 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 love neighbor, love God, we do all the stuff, yep, we're good people. And then, you know, we, we peek in the window shades, I won't, over here, okay? And if we're to see what's going on in there, there's a whole lot of anything but love. And it's just this radical hypocrisy, which is terrible when it comes to our witness. Not to mention the glory of Christ. Teach the younger women to do what's good. Like evangelize. Well, yeah, but you know what? Let's start with where we need to start, and that would be to, to love their husbands, to, to love their children. I like the simplicity of that. I'm not even a woman and I like the simplicity of that. Just teach what is good. Verse 5. To be self-controlled. There we have it again. To say no where you should say no for yourself and others. To say yes where you should say yes. I think that's the best way to capture it. Self-control. Then it says pure. It would seem morally pure. Working at home. We probably have some insight to that, perhaps, in light of chapter 1, that those faux Christians that give Christianity such a bad name are lazy. Maybe in the name of who, I don't, in the name of who knows what. No, you, you need to be a hard worker. To be a worker at home, to be diligent, not neglecting. Not neglecting those who are your closest neighbors and even loving them, for that matter. Kind. actually comes from the word good. To be good. Good to others, it would seem, then, in that context. Once again, the Bible would say, on our own, apart from Christ, no one does good, no, not one. Christian women, do good. Contradiction? No. You're a Christian woman. You're in Christ. He's prepared good works for you to walk in. According to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Kind, good, good toward others. And submissive to their own husbands. An acknowledgement of order in God's universe. One of the characteristics of the Cretans, professing believers even, they don't respect authority. Wives, be submissive to your husbands. Everyone's equal in Christ. Galatians chapter 3. But there are distinct roles. And here he's highlighting that. You should, you should acknowledge that there's a role. There's, should to be, there's to be leadership in your home. We're not going to do a whole launching study on this, but as an aside, there's order within the Godhead. 1 Corinthians 11. The Son... 
is under the authority and submits to the Father. Well, no one who's a Christian is going to say they're not equal. Christian women, godly women, acknowledge your husband's leadership in your home as something that God has ordained. First, First Timothy chapter 2 would be another passage. It's a sign of godliness. Let's move on. That the word of God may not be reviled. Maybe we should just make, make sure that we understand the significance of that tied to the submissive to your own husbands. Well, I'm not going to... Well, that, that's, that's the problem. It just leads to the reviling of God's word. It doesn't adorn the doctrine of God the Savior. So let's let it apply there, but let's let it apply to the whole list. You want to do the right thing to act in a way that is godly. It's pretty basic, though it would be hard. But you want to do the right thing so that the word of God is not reviled. So that the gospel isn't insulted, but complimented. If that's what Christianity is, I don't want any part of. Women, although this would be true with all of us, out of love for Christ and what He's done in your life, redemption, forgiveness, restoration, it should lead to this desire to say, I want people to see my life. It won't be perfect. I know that. I have good enough theology to know that. I won't be preaching the gospel with my life because I have good enough theology to know that too. But I, I so badly want lost people, not to mention found people, I so badly want lost people to see that I'm alive in Christ and, and I actually do right things, not because I'm self-righteous, but because of the righteous work of Jesus. Talk about an evangelistic kind of heartbeat for a community. That's what, what Paul is trying to, to, to use Titus to, to instill in the flame that he's, that he's trying to give fuel to. I want people to be reconciled. I want people to know Christ. I want my message to not be totally shut off because they know a thing or two about my terrible life. So you say, God, help us. We need to land the plane. Someone once told me, you know what a good landing is? The kind you walk away from. So, <laughs> that constitutes a good landing. But I, 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 don't want, I, I don't want you to miss something just by way of preview. So if you would just please, let's have this be the conclusion, then we are going to celebrate the supper together in light of what Christ has done. But if you just look ahead with me uh, to verse 11, we'll go back and we'll talk about the practicality of things, but, but do see verse 11. It really is amazing. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, Training us. See, salvation trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. That's what he's been talking about. And it's salvation that is only by grace that trains us to do these things, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here it comes up again, verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us. That's gospel talk, right? Work of Christ talk from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. 
So I wanted you to see it there. It's, it, it's, it's built in the design of the atonement to have good works come as a result. It's the worst of worst of worst errors to say the good works lead to salvation because they never will because there's no such thing as good works for the sons and daughters of Adam if we're in Adam. But because of the good work of Jesus, because it's designed even in His redemptive work, we then, because of the good one and His good work, do have fruit that comes and it is good because it comes from God, not from us sinners. And so we've got to make sure we see straight and we understand this and even use it in the context of Crete where they're to be evangelizing people. Oh yeah, I want to do that. Okay? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ redeemed us from every lawless deed, that he redeemed us so that we would be zealous for good deeds. Make us men and women who are like that, who aren't confused about grace and works, but are motivated by saving grace unto good works, that you might be honored and glorified. Help us to not be confused and start preaching ourselves and somehow exalting ourselves. And no, help us to not do that. But help us to see that in Christ comes life. And to find joy in living lives that honor Christ and are even used by you to draw people to hearing the gospel. Motivate us even regarding these things here in Omaha, Nebraska. We're thankful for this church. We're thankful for its Savior. We're thankful for your patience. In Jesus' name, amen.